Good evening. Uh, turn with me tonight to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 17. Very familiar section of scriptures for you if you're a, a Bible reader and studier. Uh, we're going to take a reading from verse uh, 16 on down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 34. And this is going to be the account of the Apostle Paul when he was at uh, Mars Hill. And uh, so we'll begin reading in chapter 17 of the book of Acts in verse 16. And the Bible says this, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know therefore that these, uh, excuse me, we would know, therefore, what these things mean, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things Therein, seeing he, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And he hath made of one blood all nations uh, of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own, own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Uh, so Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him, and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Reading of Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34. And our title tonight's going to be, uh, The God of All Gods. <laughs> The God of all gods. Now, we, we look at this uh, section in this chapter. The Apostle Paul, I believe, was on his second missionary journey. I believe he was. I, I don't believe it was his third. He's on his second missionary journey, and he comes over into Greece, and he is met with resistance at Thessalonica. And uh, the resistance pushes him out on down to Berea. And we find that in Berea, he's met with uh, good, uh, open-minded people. The Bible says that 
the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians uh, because uh, because they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. You know, uh, I wish that more people would search the scriptures with an open mind. There'd be more people getting saved in our world, you know. But he had good reception there at Berea until the, the individuals in Thessalonica realized, those that were against him, that he was could continue to preach the gospel. So they followed him down there and they pushed him out and he ended up in Athens in Greece. And, uh, you know, Paul was, he was like uh, the Jews were during Nehemiah's day. You remember when they rebuilt the wall? Uh, one of the key phrases that we find in that book is that they, they rebuilt that wall in 52 days, and the Bible says that the people had a mind to work. They had a mind to work for the Lord. And I'll tell you, the Lord needs His people to have a mind to work for Him today uh, in His churches. The worst thing that can happen to us as a Christian, uh, as an individual Christian or as a church collectively, is to get complacent and to get satisfied with where we are at in our Christian walk, because that's when deterioration starts almost immediately. Uh, but the Apostle Paul wasn't just going to sit around there and do nothing while he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to come down from Berea to where he was at. And uh, he started looking around and he began to see, can you imagine what he saw in Athens, Greece in that time? I mean, when, when, we, when we look at what, uh, what is there now, we see some of the relics that are there now, like uh, the Parthenon that was uh, that was erected for uh, Athena, a Greek goddess, for her worship. And we look at the Acropolis, and it was it was uh, erected also at one point in time for the worship of these uh, these these gods and goddesses of Greek mythology. And can you imagine as he looked around and he saw uh, all this uh, artwork and these sculptures and these statues and all this stuff and all of it was pointing to the worship of false gods. Can you imagine what that was doing inside his mind and heart? It was moving him. He was moved because he loved the truth. And uh, there's some scripture in reference to idolatry that I do want to reference because I, I believe that these thoughts... Were, may have been some of the things that were going through the Apostle Paul's uh, mind when he looked around and his spirit was stirred in him. In Second Chronicles chapter 28, we, we read about King Ahaz. Uh, it was the king of Judah at the time. Bear with me just a minute. And King Ahaz was being uh, besieged by the Assyrians. And he decided that he would want, he would try to win their favor by giving them money. And then they did nothing for him. And so he decided, well, uh, their God seems to be doing pretty good for him. I think maybe I'll worship their God. Second Chronicles chapter 28 and verse uh, 21. Second Chronicles 28, 21 says, For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and of the princes and gave it unto the king of Assyria. But he helped him not. The king of Assyria was happy to take his money and didn't provide any help for him. And in, in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord? This is that king Ahaz. 
For, check this out. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him, and he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. But look what it says. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Can you imagine the apostle Paul looking around and said, these Greek gods are going to be the ruin of these people. The spiritual ruin of them. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 14, excuse me, chapter 11, Jeremiah chapter 11. In verse 12, Then shall the cities of Judah... And the inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, but they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. I mean, very clearly the Old Testament prophets, and there are others, the Old Testament prophets, uh, God was telling them, hey, these false gods are never going to do anything for you. Never. And yet... I ask you today, as you look around in your sphere of influence in your life, is your uh, is your spirit moved within you as you see the city wholly given to different kinds of idolatry today? I mean, as the Apostle Paul had a mind to work and as he loved the truth, he also had, as we've talked about, a great zeal for God and for his work. He had an enthusiasm, an excitement for God. And he looked around and said, this stuff is not going to help these people. What can I do about it? See, this was the cause. Him being stirred in his spirit was the cause. And the effect was, in verse 17, therefore he disputed. means literally to speak diversely or to converse or even to argue. Now, I don't believe the apostle Paul went and argued angrily, but he argued in a reasonable way, in love, trying to, to show people the truth. Uh, but notice what he did. Uh, he was the effect of his being stirred in the spirit was that he went out. He first went to the religious site, the synagogue, and attempted to meet with the people that were religious minded to try and uh, to try and reason with them over the scriptures and over the truth of salvation. But notice he also went into the market daily, uh, and he met with the, and and excuse me, he went in and disputed in the market daily with them that met with him. You know, the Apostle Paul was an in-season and an out-of-season preacher. He went to the place where he was expected to speak in the synagogue and reasoned with the people there, but he also was saw the world as a, as a mission field. He saw the world and every person that he came in contact with, I believe that he, that he uh, believed that God was in uh, control of everything that happened in his life and that nothing was by chance and that every person that came, uh, he came in contact with was an opportunity that God was giving him to be a witness. And you know, the same thing can be said of you and I tonight. Every, every opportunity that we have, every person we come in contact with uh, may be an opportunity for us to be a witness. It's a different way of looking at things, but it was one uh, that the Apostle Paul, that I believe God was pleased with his worldview of seeing the world as an evangelical field of labor. 
says, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. You know, he went out, he went out looking to talk to people. And when he went out looking to talk to people, he ran into all kinds of different ideas and philosophies, didn't he? I mean, the Epicureans, my understanding is that their, uh, that their belief that they were atheists, that they were not only atheists, didn't believe in the existence of God, but they were also materialists who uh, believed that the only thing that was real was what you could see. In other words, they didn't believe in the soul. And uh, you can understand that mentality would lead one to be a pleasure seeker. Their highest value for their life was to find pleasure, to seek pleasure. Um, and then he also ran into some Stoics. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really particularly care to read about man's philosophies. I find them really confusing sometimes. Satan is the author of confusion. And if you start to read man's philosophies, it's really hard to define exactly what people believe sometimes. But Stoicism, the best that I can tell, these individuals are pantheists. In other words, they believe that God is in everything, that God is in the universe. The universe is God. And they didn't believe in materialism like the, like the Epicureans did, but they had, they were more rooted in a pride about their own virtue. Their desire was to live a life where that uh, they expected, it's kind of a fatalistic way of looking at things, they expected all the problems and troubles of life to come, and their virtue was that they were going to uh, uh, try and train themselves to deal with uh, those troubles and problems in a way that didn't elicit a lot of emotion. They weren't going to let their problems get them too upset. They weren't going to get too angry or too anxious or too sad about the problems that came in life, hence the uh, idea that we, we say somebody looks pretty stoic, that means they look pretty pretty calm and even. There's not really a whole lot of emotion that's shown there. Uh, but the stoic lifestyle, they they you could see where it could be contrary to the gospel in several ways, uh, through the pantheism and also uh, from the standpoint that they, they really despised hope. Uh, they thought that hope was just something that, that you, it, it got you feeling uh, better about a situation only to let you down. And then of course we look at the biblical, uh, the biblical teaching on that where that Paul talked about the greatest virtues that we have in Christianity, faith, hope, and charity. Hope is one of the greatest things that a Christian can have. It's the expectation that I'm going to heaven when I die, but that expectation is by the witness of the Holy Spirit in my soul. And that's a, that's a great thing uh, to motivate and keep a, a, a child of God encouraged in their Christian walk as they endure temptation and burdens. So Paul ran into these things. Man, he ran into a religious mess there, didn't he? He's got, he's got uh, Greek mythology all over the place. He's got atheists there. Uh, he's got these Stoics that are rooted in their pride and their pantheism. Kind of sounds like the United States of America today, doesn't it? Uh, it sounds like the places where I've lived, and I'm sure Indiana isn't much different than where I've lived. Paul ran into all the things that you and I run into. Some said, what will this babbler say? In the Greek, it means a seed picker. The idea is, they said, well, this, this guy, he, he just comes by like a bird and picks up a scrap of knowledge here and a scrap of knowledge there. It's like that individual that that says, well, they say this ominous source of authority, and I don't really know why I believe it, but they say that. Others, some, he seemeth to be a center forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. And my understanding is that at one point in Greece, they had a law 
that was against uh, the the the, the uh, proliferation of any more gods. Uh, history tells us that 399 BC that Socrates was actually um, he was actually sentenced to death uh, for his religious views at Mars Hill and took the the hemlock poison for it. Uh, so Paul may have there he may have been called uh, here to defend his view legally. Uh, but it says they took him and brought him unto Areopagus. Areopagus being uh, the Greek name for Mars Hill, which is the Roman name. Uh, Areopagus, it means the hill of Ares. Ares was a Greek god of war. And so you see this Greek mythology everywhere. May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. I'll tell you what uh, the, the greatest blessing that a child of God can have, I think one of the greatest blessings is for somebody to ask you, how do I get saved? Tell me about the Lord. How do I get to heaven? It's only been a few times in my life that I've had that experience where someone would ask me that, but what a blessing to have that opportunity. And they asked him, hey, come here and tell us about this new doctrine that you speak about. Now, isn't it interesting here that the world was what, four or five thousand years old at this point? The gospel message through the Old Testament had been there for that long, and yet this was considered a new doctrine to the Greeks. For thou bringest certain strange things, new things to our ears, we would know whereof, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Paul says, here's what the culture was. They were interested in being entertained and their entertainment was by hearing new philosophies and ideas. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Or he was saying to them, I look around and I perceive that in all things you're too religious. You're a religious people, but you don't know God. You're a religious people, but you're not teaching the truth about salvation. You love religion, but you don't necessarily love the real and the true and living God. You remember they weren't the only people that Paul spoke about that way. You remember how that he spoke about the Jews that way in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Remember uh, there he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge. One time uh, I was in Coos Bay there in Oregon uh, with a preacher friend of mine. We were cleaning some clams that we had just dug and some Jehovah's Witnesses come around. And I told the man, I said, you know what? I, I quoted that scripture to him. I said, that's how I feel like that you are. I really have an admiration for your zeal, for your enthusiasm, for your excitement, for your religion. You're a religious person, but you're not doing it in truth. You're not glorifying and lifting up Jesus as deity, as the God man, as the Messiah, Savior of the world. Sometimes I get embarrassed because I feel like that some of the false religions in the world have more zeal for their false religion than God's people have for the truth. You know that? That's to our that's to our shame. Myself include I'm including myself in that. But they were a zealous people, excited for religion. He said, "You're religious." He says, "For I, as I passed by." And beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. 
There's a man, history says his name was Petronius. Petronius made the statement it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. That's how many they had. And Paul told him, he says, I found an altar here to the unknown God. This is the God. The God that you don't know is the God I want to tell you about. The God that you don't know is the only God that you need to know. You don't know about Him, but you need to know Him personally. Man, is this message so applicable to the world that you and I live in today? We need to tell this world about an unknown God that they may have heard about but know nothing about and certainly don't know personally. He said, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him ye ignorantly worship. You don't know how to worship Him. You don't know anything much about Him, but you're trying. He's the one that I want to tell you about, that I want to declare unto you. And notice He says, First of all, God that made the world and all things therein. God, he's, you see this every time. The apostle Paul is when he runs to, runs into those that believe in false gods, one of the first things that he always does is talk about God as being the creator of all things. He, he is essentially exalting the first commandment. To have no other gods before you, Moses said. Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength as one of the two great commandments and to love your neighbor as yourself. He said all the law and the gospel is contained in these two. And we find that the atheism of the Epicureans violated that law. And we find that the pantheism of the Stoics violated that law. And we find that uh, the Greek mythology with the multiplicity of gods violated that law. And so Paul stood there and put before them that commandment. Do you know that commandment needs to be put before people today? God is the creator of the world. You know evolution is the biggest lie going it's the biggest lie going out there. It's the biggest scam going on in the world is evolution being taught to all of our kids as if it's a fact. And yet there's so many holes in evolution when you begin to look at it even from a scientific standpoint. There's so many false teachings uh, 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 in the ideas of evolution. Uh, so many false ideas. Uh, trying to bring forth uh, false ideas such that the environment plays an effect on the reproductive DNA of an individual. That can't happen, brothers and sisters. Uh, we look at what it takes to, to make an amino acid from the DNA bases, thymine, guanine, uracil, thymine. They have to be in the right sequence, the exact right sequence to form an amino acid and so many amino acids to form a protein and so many proteins uh, to form an organism. Do you know some of the probabilities to change from one organism to another organism? The probabilities are astronomical. They're astronomical that you would get all of those DNA bases to be changed in the right sequence, exactly how they need to be changed by chance. I was reading one time that many scientists believe that a whale evolved from a hyena. And 
that there's at least 13 major body parts and components that it would take, that they would, that would need to evolve for that to happen. And that the probabilities of all of those things changing at the right time in the right sequences came out to something like this. One in 364 followed by 1,625 zeros. Are those probabilities that you want to invest your money in? Are those probabilities you want to invest your, your time in? More importantly, are those probabilities that you want to invest your eternal soul in tonight? And there's so many other things that we could talk about about that subject. I want to encourage you to study that subject and tell your kids about it and tell your grandkids about it and tell your friends and neighbors about it and tell everybody you know about it because that false doctrine is doing more damage to God's cause and to our churches and to our young people than probably anything else out there. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. God is the creator of the world. I told you last night that if for somebody to get saved, they're going to have to believe that. And when you've got your public school systems and your universities and colleges all pounding and teaching and forcing people to take classes and take tests where they have to give answers that uh, indicate that evolution is true, you've got all kinds of lies and false teachings going in the minds of young kids that's drawing them away from God. Drawing them away from the Lord. And they're going to have to let that stuff die, forsake it, repent of it, let it go in order to seek the Lord and get saved. It's just not true. Evolution is just not true. Notice, and, and you know the Apostle Paul, I will, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. This is where I took my title from tonight. He is the God of all gods. And you look, you look in the Bible. How many times? How many times have God's people had to go to war with false gods and, and idols? I mean, you look at the Apostle Paul's ministry. After this, in chapter 19, when he went to Ephesus, he went there and there was a, uh, there was a riot in Ephesus because he was preaching the gospel against the Greek goddess Diana, or Diana was her Roman name. Her Greek name was Artemis. He was preaching against Artemis. And the temple of Artemis was there in Ephesus and there was lots of people making little gods of silversmiths and idols and they were making tons of money off that. He preached against it and the people rebelled for the love of money. Go back to chapter 14. He was fighting idolatry in chapter 14 in, in this Greek mythology. Chapter 14. Remember, starting in verse 8, Paul is preaching at Lystra. He sees a man that is impotent. He's... he's uh, um, cripple, excuse me. He's impotent in his feet or lacks power in his feet. He's crippled from his mother's womb. And uh, Paul, beholding him, perceived that he had faith to be healed. I don't know how that happened. The Holy Spirit must have helped him to perceive that the man had the faith to be healed. He looks across the room and says, stand upright on thy feet. And the man jumps up and starts to walk. God does a miraculous thing there and a healing to accredit the message that Paul had. What did the people do? Did they give God the honor and glory for the power of God being manifest there in helping that man? No. They said, hey, Paul, Barnabas, Barnabas is Jupiter. In verse 12, Barnabas is Jupiter and Paul's Mercury. 
because he was the chief speaker. Those are the Roman names for some Greek gods. You know what they were calling Barnabas? They were calling Barnabas Zeus and they were calling Paul Hermes. You're the Greek gods. The gods have come here and they are in human form. And Paul said they were going to give sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Paul said, wait a minute. No, no. Tore his clothes, went into an external morning, ran over there and said, listen, we're men just like you are. We're men just like you are. And he said in verse 15, and we preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities. Turn from these false gods. They're empty. They're worthless. They have no value. That's what vanity means. Turn from them and turn to the living God. Notice how he describes the living God there. He says, and unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Paul says, you need to turn to the God who is the creator of all things. God is the creator of all things. Listen, we need to, we need to put before people that God is the creator. Don't be afraid to do that. God is the creator of all things. Exalt him, lift him up. We find in the Old Testament several places where the individuals ran into uh, idolatry and false gods. You remember one of my favorites is Elijah when he's at Mount Carmel. Remember, and the prophets of Baal are out there, and they put their sacrifices out before Baal, and they're out there calling out to Baal, crying out to Baal, cutting themselves, bleeding out there, and Elijah begins to mock them. And he says, oh, <laughs> he's not hearing you. There's a reason why he's not hearing you. Maybe he's asleep and you need to wake him up. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's talking to somebody else. And in some uh, translation it says, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Your God was nothing. Nothing. You remember the Philistine God, Dagon? They brought the Ark of the Covenant in there. The Philistines did. They said, oh, we've got the Ark of the Covenant. We've got the Israelites now. We're going to put it in there with our God, Dagon. (laughs) The next day they came in and Dagon, this idol, was on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And what? He'd fallen off the shelf. They had to pick him up, put him back on the shelf. Next day they came in and Dagon was on his face again, only this time his head and his hands were cut off. God let them know just exactly what he thought of their false god. And then you remember what uh, what God did uh, to the Egyptians and their, the Egyptian mythology back uh, in the Exodus out of Egypt. And all of the, uh, each one of the uh, ten plagues that God brought on to uh, Egypt was all, every one of those plagues was in reference directly to one of the Egyptian gods where that God was telling the Egyptians, your God is nothing. Your God is powerless. I'm the one in control and let me show you how that your God is powerless. Two of them that I remember. Uh, one of them was... Uh, when uh, he brought on the he brought on the plague of uh killing all the cattle and the cattle there were considered sacred in Egypt they were considered a, a, a point of worship and there was the the god the egyptian god i think his, the name was uh, i think it was like thaw or something along those lines was supposed to be protective of the egyptians and uh and 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 represented symbolically by this cow and God just came in and just took all the cows out and said, what's your, what's your uh, God of worship going to do now? I'm the one in control. I own the, the cattle on the thousand hills. And then uh, they worshiped the sun god, Ra. And uh, 
God brought a darkness upon the land of Egypt. Remember, it said a darkness that could be felt. I'm not sure if that was a darkness that caused them to be depressed or anxious or what the deal was, but it was something that they could feel. It happened for three days, and God was just telling them, your son God is nothing. I put him out of commission. I'm the one in control of the sun. I created the sun, and I'll decide when you get some sunlight and when you don't. We serve the God of gods tonight. There's no God greater than him. God that made the world and all things there and seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands. God, I think, I believe that Paul here was telling him, he says, uh, the true God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. The true God is omniscient. He knows everything. The true God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time and you can't contain him. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 8, you remember uh, probably what the dialogue that Solomon had with the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 8 in his prayer there. He was going to build the house of God, the temple. He said in verse 26 in his prayer, he said, And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David, my father. Going to build, build the house of God. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. He said, this house can't contain you. It's an honor and a privilege for you to meet with us. But this house can't contain you. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. In Isaiah chapter 46, we see Isaiah talking about this very thing with the, the idols. He says, Bel boweth down. Bel is a, a, a false god. Nebo stoopeth. He's a false god. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy laden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. What did he say? Down a little farther, he says they lavish in verse 6. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. Isaiah is saying that uh, they make their own gods and those gods are a burden to them. They have to be carried by the people. They have to be serviced by the people. They have to be taken care of by the people. And Paul said, the true and the living God is the one who takes care of me. I don't take care of him, Paul said. He takes care of me. He hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. He made of one man. Here Paul is talking about the equality of mankind. He's talking about the fact that God is no respecter of persons. Trying to instill to the Greeks that God has one plan of salvation for all men. 
You remember, uh, I believe Peter said in the book of Acts, he said, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's a universal plan of salvation. That plan of salvation is for every single person ever been born into the world and walked on the earth. It doesn't matter what the culture is. You know, today in our world, culture is such a big deal. You know, I believe that God doesn't care a thing in the world about culture. Culture is a man-made idea. Uh, 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 the truth is supposed to transcend all cultures. There's no good culture or bad culture unless those cultures have intertwined in them false religion. He hath made in one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the allotted time periods. God has given the allotted time periods for us, our lifespan, our time of influence in the world, both as individuals, as churches, as nations. He has, he has uh, appointed the bounds of our habitation or the boundaries of our dwelling places. God has set those. He has placed us in the land where he wants us to be for the time period that he wants us to be here. And he says that they should seek the Lord if happily or if then they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Here's the universal plan of salvation that every individual would go looking for God. They would go searching and seeking for God until they found him. Uh, he said that they might feel after him, uh, kind of like a, somebody in the dark. Uh, I probably, I would imagine it was the same for you tonight as it was for me when I was lost, but I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know how to seek the Lord. I didn't know how to go looking for God. I just tried to feel after him in my sin, in my darkness, in my lack of understanding of God. I began to pray and feel after him until I found him, until I found him. I think I may have said this the other night, but Solomon said that the wicked walk in darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Sin is darkness, deceptive darkness. We all have walked in it and we have to feel after the Lord in prayer, in searching after him spiritually until we meet his requirements of repentance and faith and find him, find him in true salvation. He's not far from every one of us. The Lord is close by. You know, one of the things about being a visiting preacher, I don't know the history for most people. I don't know who's a member of the church, who isn't. I don't really know uh, who's given a profession of salvation and who isn't. I just have to try to follow the Lord in my preaching. And uh, I'll just say tonight that if you're lost, the Lord is not very far from you. He's not. He's not. Go looking for him. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul makes an, uh, an appeal here to some of the literature of the Greeks. He says, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Quotes a couple of men here, Epimenides and Aratus, uh, in trying to appeal uh, to them. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold, silver, or stone graven by art and man's device. He said, listen, we as hum human beings are so much more complex 
than the materials that these false gods are made out of. If we are so much more complex than them and we are the offspring of God, how much more complex is God than us? How much more complex is God than than these false gods who are made out of the works of our hands? And there's scripture. I'm not going to go there tonight. But you can go and read in Isaiah 44 and 19, Deuteronomy 4, 28, Psalm 115, and you're going to find things like this. The false gods have eyes they can't see. They have ears they can't hear. They're made out of a piece of wood, and you use that wood to warm yourself, and you use that wood to cook food, and then you use that wood to make a god. And Isaiah mocks them for the foolishness of all that. Listen, he says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at or God overlooked. God had a period of time that was merciful for this kind of mentality and thinking. He had a period of time that was merciful. God has a period of time that is merciful for us in our lives also. But he says, now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I love that statement because of the universality in it. God commands all men everywhere. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what your culture is, what country you're from, what time frame you lived in here in the earth. It doesn't matter. God's commanded all men everywhere to repent. And people say, well, you mean there's only one right plan of salvation? Yes. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. All men everywhere to repent. To turn from their wickedness. To turn from their love of sin. To turn from their love of idolatry. To turn from their heretical thoughts and beliefs. To turn unto God and turn away from that sin. That's what repentance is. To begin to hate the sin that you love. To hate it. And to desire God. And why is he commanded all men everywhere to repent? Because he hath appointed a day, the judgment day, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. I'll tell you what, if you're going to the judgment and you're uh, depending upon your righteousness, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. But the Bible tells us in the book of 1 John that we can have confidence in the day of judgment and our confidence is that we have depended upon the one who has, uh, who is all righteous and when he saved our souls, he, uh, he covered us in his death, he covered us in his righteousness. And so when you go to the judgment and you're covered in the blood of Jesus, you're in good shape. You're going to go before the judge with the statement, I'm only here because I trusted you. I trusted you. I trusted your righteousness. I had your righteousness imputed to me. Thank you, Lord. He pointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, speaking about Jesus, whom he hath ordained. The Bible says, the Hebrew writer said, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Haven't found one person yet that wants to argue they've got an appointment with death. The Hebrew writer said that just as sure as you've got an appointment with death, you've got an appointment with judgment. 
If you're planning on dying, you better plan on going to the judgment too. You're going to die and then you're going to the judgment. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men. What's the assurance? That he's the righteous judge of the world? He raised from the dead. (laughs) He overcame death. He overcame sin. The wages of sin is death. (laughs) The resurrection is the key. And because Jesus raised from the dead, we have hope of eternal life. The Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, if there's no resurrection, our faith is vain. Our preaching is vain. We of all men are most miserable. Vain means empty, worthless, nothing. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, we're wasting our lives. But if Jesus did resurrect from the dead, we're using our lives to proclaim the gospel and that's the highest value that you can use your life to do. That's the, that's the highest value that you can, that you can do with your life is to proclaim the gospel to others if Jesus resurrected from the dead. And Paul earlier in that chapter had told us there's more than 500 witnesses of his physical body after the resurrection. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You know, Paul didn't even get through this message. He wasn't like tonight. I'm before a, a crowd of, of, I would say, like-minded people. He wasn't before a crowd of like-minded people. They just cut him off when he started preaching about the resurrection. They did the same thing that we read about last night, about the second coming. There was mockers. They mocked him. They made fun of the resurrection. Others said, others were procrastinators. They said, we'll hear you again sometime of this matter. Listen, procrastination when it comes to your soul is straight from the pits of hell. It is straight from the pits of hell. Uh, we find in the Bible uh, that the Apostle Paul was came in contact with a man named Felix at one point. Felix came to him while he was imprisoned and wanted to bribe him. And Paul began to reason with him of righteousness, of judgment, and of temperance. And uh, the, the Bible says that he began to tremble. He came under great conviction of the Holy Spirit about his lost soul and his need to get saved. But he said, I'll hear you again on this matter sometime. He put off, he procrastinated and put off salvation. You don't want to put off salvation. God is dealing with you tonight. You need to come and seek the Lord. And I'll tell you, uh, maybe there's somebody here that has given a false profession of salvation and you're really lost. Hey, uh, don't be embarrassed by that. Make sure you get it right with God. That's the most important thing. Get it right with God. And just know if that's the case for you, you're not the first one that's ever uh, been confused or deceived. It's happened to many, many, many people before you. But the worst thing that you could do is let your pride get in the way of keeping you from seeking God and really getting satisfied in your soul. Don't put off salvation too long. Don't be a procrastinator. Felix was a procrastinator. These Greeks were procrastinators. We don't find anywhere in the Bible that they ever came back to hear the gospel message again. Don't take for granted this blessed opportunity that you have tonight. You have a blessed opportunity. 
It's Friday night. You've probably been working all week. You've been coming to revival. You're probably tired. It doesn't matter. You've got a fantastic opportunity. And it might be your last one. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. Listen, I want to encourage you, church, tonight. You may get some resistance when you try to evangelize, talk to people about the Lord and witness to people. You probably will get some resistance along the way. Some may mock you. Some may give you a hard time. Some may procrastinate against you. But listen, there are people out there who will hear you and who uh, can uh, then seek the Lord and find God for true salvation. Don't be put off by resistance. Continue on. Continue on. If you just witness to one person that gets saved, wouldn't that be worth it all? Wouldn't that be worth it all? And Paul had at least four that got saved here. Dionysius, a woman named Damaris, and there were others with him. Others is plural. So that's one, two, plus at least two more. That's at least four people that got saved. I'm just preaching there at Mars Hill. Listen, if you're lost tonight, we want to encourage you to seek the Lord. If you're saved tonight, we want to encourage you to go out in the community and talk to people that you know. When you go to the marketplace, ask God to open a door of utterance for you. When you run into the Stoics and the Epicureans, because you will. Don't be intimidated by it, but talk to them about how God is the Creator. Challenge them on their beliefs of evolution. Tell them your testimony and speak some good gospel scripture to them. And love them. And pray for them. And come back and ask your church to pray for them. And then see what God can do. See what God can do. I love you. I'm thankful to be here.